Hello. Hey, you're here. Charlie said nobody would come. That's why he said I could speak. This is exciting. Uh, welcome. My name is Joe. I uh, serve as a, a teaching pastor here at Southbrook. And uh, what we're going to do this Independence Weekend is look at uh, Revelation and see what we can learn from a few verses there in this text messages series that we're doing. Uh, I don't, I'm not a big poetry guy. I, told, I, I respect poetry very much. It goes into the like class, like the, the classification of arts of like opera for me where I get it. I'm supposed to like it. I try really hard and I just can't make myself like it. Um, that's kind of how, how I feel about poetry. I'm sort of more of a, a narrative story guy, but I wanted to start today. I, I don't think I've ever done this before by actually reading you a poem. Uh, that I, I heard this week. I, I'd heard it. It was pretty popular a while back, but uh, this is just part of it. It goes like this. I want my cake. Want to eat it too. I want the stars, the silver moon. Anybody know the poem yet? I spend my money on lottery. My favorite number is one, two, three. You see, I want money. Lots and lots of money. I want my pie in the sky. I want lots and lots of money, so don't be asking me why. I want to be rich. Oh, I want to be rich. Oh, I want to be rich. Oh, I want it. Pretty great, right? <laughs> Does, you guys remember that song? Yeah. So uh, today we're talking about uh, how to get rich. It's very exciting. Um, <laughs> and uh, what it looks like. Uh, to have uh, a Jesus kind of view of what it means uh, to be wealthy, and so this is all coming from these, this uh, this passage, the, the book of Revelation. After after sort of a setup, moves into this uh, th- these two chapters where um, John, who's writing this book, uh, is sort of uh, dictating, if you will, from Jesus these letters to seven different churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, um, and uh, because it's in Revelation. Everyone has a very specific opinion about what it all means, and nobody knows. So uh, I, I think that this is sort of the uh, more direct, more literal setup to a fantastical allegory that's going to uh, come the next you know, 20 chapters. Um, and I, I think – I don't know if these uh, specific cities that are addressed to each of these seven churches – were meant to be taken literally as if they were really written to these cities. But the cities that, that they're chosen to be written to – rain, I guess, right? All right. I'm on earthquake alert. I lived in LA for two and a half years, so it still messes with me. Um, so we come to the second one, which is uh, the church in Smyrna. Anybody ever been to Smyrna on vacation or anything? Probably not. So uh, this is what it says. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? By the way, Smyrna means myrrh, uh, which... Uh, Generally, we only know about is one of the three gifts that the wise men bring Jesus. Very expensive spice, uh, and uh, it was used primarily to, for burial of bodies. Um, but if we take anything from the from the name, literal name of the uh, of the place, then it might imply some sort of wealth. Uh, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write: These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. So each of these churches sets up with some interesting way to talk about who Jesus is uh, because uh, this is a very sort of poetic 
book. Uh, it's not, hey, this is Jesus. I'm going to tell you some things. We get some fun titles for Jesus. This one, uh, to him who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, right? And also the one who died and came to life. That's kind of an interesting uh, uh, phrase that John chooses uh, to use for the church of Smyrna. Historically, uh, Smyrna was founded like 2000 BC, so that's a long time ago. And then around 1200 BC, it was destroyed. It didn't exist. It didn't exist for about 900 years until Alexander the Great decided to rebuild Smyrna. And so Smyrna actually was known, direct quote, as the city that died and came to life again. So uh, there's a little, uh, a little nod to um, you know, Smyrna's nickname and history with Jesus saying, these are the words of the first and the last. The person who actually did that thing died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, not totally sure what's going on except to uh, understand from that there's some conflict going on between the church, uh, presumably Gentile and Jewish converts in the church, and the Jews that have, many of the Jews that had come from Jerusalem. I would date Revela- Revelation after 70 A.D., all that means is Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., and Smyrna was one of the cities that a bunch of Jewish folks fled to. So what we see here is the same tension that's going on in the Gospels uh, just a generation later between uh, the Jews, sort of uh, some of the Jews not seeing Jesus as Messiah. It could be that. It could be, much, could be a much bigger thing. We don't know for sure, but there's some conflict going on. And the, the writer's saying, don't worry about that. Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer which is kind of a backhanded message from Jesus, right? Like, don't be afraid that you're about to go through terrible things. Uh, don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. I think 10 days means like a short time, and then it'll be over. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as a victor's crown. So be faithful even to death, and if you're faithful to death, I will give you life, Jesus says. All, the, all these uh, seven churches end with the same pattern. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, so these are the verses here. Um, and uh, what, what jumped out for here to me is um, this Smyrna city was a wealthy city. Um, Revelation is one of those books that's, Hard to pinpoint what when it was written exactly. But even if you take the full sort of, you know, seven or eight decade span when people think it might have been written, it seems like during all those decades, Smyrna, the city, was doing pretty well. Uh, it was one of the favorite cities of the whole Roman Empire. Um, at the same time when Jesus was alive, uh, Rome decided that it was going to build a, a, a temple to uh, Caesar Tiberius. And sort of institute this idea that we were going to now just we were going to actually worship the emperor as a god. They have 11, 11 cities sort of bid on it. It was like it was like the World Cup back in the day, right? Um, or the Olympics. You guys you guys understand sports, right? I need another example. Um, so all the city, all the cities vied for it, and they chose Smyrna as the city that deserved that loved Rome so much that it deserved to be the city to initiate this sort of emperor worship thing. And we know that by uh, the 80s A.D. that um, it was mandatory to worship Caesar in Smyrna. You had to go to the temple once a year and get a certificate to prove that you worshipped Caesar. And if you didn't, you'd be thrown in jail. So uh, this is this is a wealthy city, very Roman, uh, very much uh, 
into this sort of cult of, of worshiping uh, Caesar. And yet when we write to the church in Smyrna, it's not reflective, it seems, of the city. The church itself is poor. Um, it's, it's pretty hard to take that any other way ap- apart from literal. Like, I don't think it's saying like poor in spirit. I think this, this is saying the church in, Smyr- in Smyrna, you're poor people. You don't have a lot of money. You are, are being uh, tormented and tortured by the people around you. We do know uh, after Revelation was written, just a generation after, that Smyrna was a hotbed for persecution of Christians. Uh, there's a very famous story. One of the earliest martyrs of the church was a guy named Polycarp. Again, if you're looking for baby names, <laughs> Polycarp. It's a boy name, but, uh, but nobody's going to know the difference. If you want to name a girl that, it's fine. Polycarp. Um, Polycarp was the uh, elder pastor of the church in Smyrna. And uh, when he was 86 years old, um, he was uh, pulled in front of like a Colosseum sort of situation and, and told to, he, that he had to say that Caesar was Lord. And he says, uh, recorded him saying, 80 and six years have I served him. I will not deny my Savior who bought me. Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar, and he's killed. He's martyred. Um, so we don't know if the persecution is that heavy at the time that this book was being written, but we know it's certainly on a pathway there. And this, these verses certainly imply Jesus saying, you're about to enter a time of persecution uh, for what you believe. And the phrase that jumps out to me in this whole thing is, is when he says to the church, I, I see your troubles, I see your tribulations, I see your poverty, and yet you are rich. You're rich. That, that's a financial word, like you're wealthy. And um, it, it, it makes me, the first thing I feel like is I, I sort of hate platitudes. Um, and, you know, this is coming from Jesus, so it obviously means a great deal, and we're going to look into it for the rest of the time. But don't you kind of hate it when you're literally poor and someone says, but you're rich. And you want to say, no, I'm poor. I, I don't have enough money. Or when, or when, like, you break up with someone that you really love and you've been dating, and they say, well, you're better for it. Well, maybe technically... In a few years, I'll see that. But right now, I don't feel it. Or when you're, when you're sick or you're battling a disease and someone says, oh, you're, you're healthy, your heart is healthy. Like your insight, like your, your spirit's healthy. Okay, great. <laughs> like it's hard sometimes to hear those things when you're in the middle of suffering. And yet Jesus comes and I don't think he's offering a platitude because I think uh, in at least five of these seven churches, Jesus sees something that he taught while he was here and he's expressing sort of uh, kudos, gratitude for a church actually living out the things he taught. So let's spend sort of the rest of our time thinking about what does it really mean to be wealthy or or what did it mean to be rich to Jesus? Understanding uh, Jesus was uh, impoverished. There's very few few academic scholars who have studied the life of Jesus that would conclude that he was middle class or wealthy. Uh, He was... uh, He was... Uh, a homeless, itinerant pastor, preacher, rabbi, uh, who was dependent on the gifts of the women who followed him around, many of them prostitutes, to fund his ministry. He went from home to home. There were nights he didn't have a place to lay his head. Uh, he uh, would often uh, have people who, even wealthy people who would follow him, would give their money to the poor so that even his followers, when they came to follow him, they didn't have money, so he couldn't ask for offerings. He, he spent at least the three years of his life 
um, as, as a Galilean uh, in the poverty class, which was a huge class uh, in his time, a ton of people. Um, and so to him, uh, when he talks about being rich, he means he has, I think, come to a place of understanding because uh, Christ is God, right? So he, he, comes with, he comes with this deep, deep, truthful understanding of what it really means to be rich. And he tries to teach his followers what that means. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have uh, actually a lot of that sermon dealing with very practical things like what if I don't have enough money or clothes or food. Um, and in this section, he says this. This is uh, Jesus in Ma- the book of Matthew. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroyed. I picked this, uh, I picked this version, this translation, just because of the word vermin. Because it's usually rust. I don't know why they choose vermin, but it's such a great... I'm, I'm from Kentucky. It's a great word. Um, do not store, store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure, What you treasure, that's where your heart is. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. All of this is saying what you focus on, what you treasure, what you, what you gaze upon is what you become, right? Uh, if, if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Then pretty straightforward stuff here. No one can serve two masters. Just can't do it. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Um, you, 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 you cannot love both God and money equally. You cannot trust God and trust money. So uh, this is often... Um, a difficult thing to talk about, I think, in, in our culture. Um, I feel the need to, to say this anytime um, we talk about what it means to be rich. And I want you to know, this is not primarily like this. I'm not setting you up to ask. We're not going to take a collection, right? Uh, today's not, it's not like about, if, if you take out of this that you ought to be giving more to Southbrook, that's great. But it's it's not about raising money for the church at all today. It's, it's about understanding how Jesus views money, um, and wealth and being rich. And we are talking about this in, historically speaking, a very wealthy position, right? We are in the wealthiest country in the world and in one of the, you know, in a, in, a, in a typically great economy right now, most of us were born into a position where we were able to inherit some sort of benefit from our parents, not everyone, but many of us. In the suburbs uh, of American cities, which is, by the way, where we are, right? Most of the people you talk to, not everyone, and not everyone in this room probably, but most of the people in here probably are rich if our standard of rich is, I know where I'm going to sleep tonight. I either have food at home or enough money to buy food tomorrow. Uh, I, I don't have to go, uh, go home to some place that, um, you know, if it rains, it's going to rain through my ceiling, like, like, like for real, not just your attic leak, but you know what I mean? Like that on the Maslow pyramid, like our basic needs for many of us, not all of us are met. And as I talk through this, please excuse me if you're at a place, uh, if you're at a place struggling where your basic needs aren't met and we would like to help you somehow if we can, if you're there. But 
most of us are at a place where we have food, we have shelter, we have clothes. And from a worldwide historical perspective, we're rich, even if by this culture's definition, we make a modest amount of money or or we feel poor. Um, And so it's just important to remember that because um, I have very few friends. I can only think of about three friends I have. If I asked them, are you rich? They'd say, oh, yeah. Yeah, super rich. (laughs) Like most people think that they aren't rich because they know someone with more money than them. And that becomes everyone's definition. Uh, But as a a reminder, and when Jesus, from from the poverty class, Jesus speaking up to those with with resources, many of us fall in the category uh, of wealth. And so I think we butt right into against uh, some of the hardest teachings of Jesus when he gets to teaching on money. One of the reasons you know that we're going to talk about our really hard teaching of Jesus is I was assigned the topic. All right, so... uh, you can't serve both God and money. I want to look at uh, kind of three, if we go onto like a blank screen, that'd be great. So I can draw. I want to draw pictures on the screen. Thank you. Oh, I'm not, not as good at this as Charlie. Just listen to the rain. It's fine. Can you read that? All right. I want to talk about three things that, uh, that I think we believe that if we serve money, if we love money, if we trust money, we'll get. Uh, the first one is happiness. Have you heard the phrase, money can't buy you happiness? It's not in the Bible. It's not a quote. Uh, it's often said by people without a lot of money. Uh, so uh, can money buy you happiness is a great question to ask. Um, And ultimately, I'm going to land on not really. Uh, But there have been some scientific studies done to see if people who make more money are happier than people who make less money. And what they found out is sometimes, sometimes, uh, in 2015, there was a big study done in the United States about uh, people's income. And what they found is that uh, there was, for some people, a small, uh, there was some measure of lower anxiety until people made enough money to have their needs met and have a little left over. And they put that number, depending on what city that you lived in, somewhere between like forty-five dollars and $75,000 a year per household. Um, that if you made less than that, um, th- it did create some tension and stress in your life. And this is just a scientific study. Of course, they weren't asking people where their faith was or how they viewed money or anything like that. But the interesting thing they found is that at about $75,000, uh, it started to, to dive bomb. Uh, the money making you happy. And that for people with a lot, a lot of money, they actually registered as unhappy as people with with very little money. Um, And that there's virtually no difference, for instance, someone making $80,000 a year and someone making a million dollars a year. Um, Which which I think says something to us that, you know, and when I use the word happiness, I just mean, you know, are you generally in good spirits, all things considered, right? Um, and so, yeah, 
if people don't have enough money to put food on the table, they're not going to be in very good spirits. And I happen to believe it's the job of the church to help figure that out so that we can get them to a place where they are in good spirits. Um, but beyond that, it seems that money, more money doesn't actually equal more happiness. Um, there's this, uh, this story, this guy named David who won $335 million in the West Virginia lottery in t- 2002 and was bankrupt by 2007. His wife left him. Uh, his daughter died of a drug addiction, um, and he had a, like his last half million dollars stolen from his car at a strip club. I'm just saying it doesn't always work out great, right? Sometimes uh, we th- he said if he said if he could go back in time and do one thing, he'd tear up that lottery ticket. That it ruined his life. And I know what you're thinking, because you're probably thinking the same thing I'm thinking. I'll take my chances. <laughs> like <laughs> this might. I, there are some lessons in life. The only way you ever learn them is to try it out and see if it works. Um, like sushi. <laughs> I don't know. Coffee. Like some things like, I don't want that. I don't want that. I'll try it. Oh, it was good. Or no, you're right. I don't like it. Um, and getting really rich is generally one thing everyone wants to learn for themselves if it makes them happy or not. Um, and it's not enough for someone to just say it. But we do have enough warnings of folks to say it really uh, having more and more wealth didn't actually uh, make me happy. It, it actually made things, for some people, considerably worse. And we're going to talk about this as we go. doesn't mean it's wrong if you have a lot of wealth. The Bible also says that's a blessing from God, and you're entrusted with it, and you get to do amazing things with it, including being super generous. Um, but it, it doesn't mean you'll be more content at all. So uh, for each of these three things, I'd like to do like a case study of someone that Jesus actually ran into in the real world. And for this one, um, one of my favorite stories is in uh, Luke. And by the way, if you want to read one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, with a lens of this this idea of wealth and money, Luke by far um, sees the Gospel very much through a financial lens. And so the first two stories, at least, I'm going to tell you are from Luke. This one involves a, a tax collector, a chief tax collector, a man named Zacchaeus. Uh, he was a tiny little guy, Danny DeVito situation. Um, and uh, I always think I would make him Danny DeVito or Joe Pesci, either one, because uh, I, to me, the, the tax collectors are mob bosses. They're the Sopranos because they're sort of running organized crime. Uh, they were Jewish but turned on the Jewish uh, people to work for Rome to, uh, to exhort uh, all sorts of money for themselves and for the government. Uh, it basically worked like this. Rome would say, hey, we need 10% from everybody. Charge whatever you want. Keep Your payment is how much more you can get out of them. Um, so you come in and you are asking for 20%, 30%. Um, and I mean, the IRS is complicated, and none of us really love it, unless I don't know who loves it. But um, at least in theory, there are rules, maybe way too many of them. Uh, but this is like kind of the wild, wild west of tax collection back in the day. Um, and whatever he came to your house, praise your house, say you owe me this month, and you have to give it to him. So everyone hated him. Um, Zacchaeus was the, the wealthiest guy in town, but everyone who went to high school with him wouldn't talk to him. Um, the only people who would hang out with him were prostitutes because he had to pay them to come to his parties. Um, he, he was not living his best life. He was absolutely 100% miserable. And then he heard that someone was coming to town, this this uh, Jewish uh, rabbi named Yeshua, Jesus. 
and that this Jesus had a way of saying words and doing miracles and, and engaging with people that could take a miserable life and make it good again. And so of everyone in his little town of Jericho, he, made, he wanted to make sure he was the one to see Jesus, and the problem was tiny little dude. So he couldn't, he couldn't see him. He couldn't see past uh, all these giants living in his town. And so this grown man uh, shimmies up a tree, climbs a tree, climbs a sycamore tree, and it was, one, it was a tree that would like sort of look over the main street that Jesus was going to walk down when he came into uh, Jericho. So he climbs in the tree, and he climbs out in a limb, and he's looking up. It's the only person in history who for sure would know if Jesus had male pattern baldness. And for a lot, I'm just going to say, looking out here, he did, guys. It's fine. You're a lot like Jesus. It's fine. Um, so Jesus is walking by, and, and, and it's like a parade atmosphere. Everybody, This is a time, the, one of the most popular seasons of Jesus' life and career. So it's like, you know, everyone just mobbing, trying to see him. And there's this one middle-aged guy in a tree um, looking down, and Jesus stops right under him, and he looks up, and he says, Zacchaeus? One of the great things about Jesus was that he knew people's names for no good reason, right? Like, just, Zacchaeus, come down. I came to have lunch at your house today. And everyone um, gasps, right? <gasps> it's like it's like if there's a known con artist in town. Um, and the kind of person that just rips everyone off that everyone knows he's a bad guy, but he never gets his. Always seems to get away with it. And this holy man comes into town. And everyone wants to be noticed by him. Everyone just wants five minutes with him. And he sees the con artist. And he says, I want to be with you. And so Zacchaeus takes Jesus back to his house. Uh, probably the first person that wasn't a fellow tax collector or a prostitute that had been in his house for years. Uh, I imagine it as a gaudy mansion, but who knows? We don't have, we don't have the, a record of the conversation that happened between Zacchaeus and Jesus while they were together. All we have is the press conference after the meeting. Jesus and Zacchaeus come out, and they're standing on the front porch, and everyone in town is just gathered to see what, what's happening. And uh, Jesus says, uh, my buddy Zacchaeus here, we had, a, we had a good meeting. He's got something to say. Go ahead. And Zacchaeus says, uh, Hey, yo, uh, you know, uh, I feel real bad for what I've done. And uh, if any of you, if I owe any of you any money, uh, if, if I stole anything from any of you, I'll pay it back five times the amount. I've been making interest. I don't know how he gets all the money, but like, um, and everyone's just floored. And what isn't said but is certainly implied in this next statement of Jesus is that Zacchaeus is finally in good spirits. Because the, the thing Jesus says is this is a true son of Abraham in whom nothing is false. That's like a top three Jewish compliment. He's, he's a pure son of Abraham. Jesus comes in and in that hour in his house, heals this man, changes him, converts him, and he gives him this gift of whatever you want to call it, happiness, joy, contentment, peace. 
And we see, we see one of the lies that creeps in when we do let money be our God. Um, and it's, it's, not just, it's not just that we'll be happy like we can, we can spend it on these fun things. Uh, but it's this lie that, that really tells us it's, it's where we get some measure of our joy. The same, uh, the same scientific st- survey that they did about what makes people happy or not happy found that there was one thing that increased people's happiness with money more than anything else. You know what it was? Giving it away. There was a clear bump on the meter of people who gave more than 10% of their money away. They were just happier, no matter how much they made. There's, there's something in us that God put there, that when we're generous, we feel better. And when we hoard for ourselves, we feel worse. So, if you serve and love money, does it give you happiness? Uh, I say no. But some people are like, I don't... I don't need to be happy. I just want to be safe, right? That's why, that's, that's where my temptation comes in, uh, is that uh, I just want to know that I have enough so that when something bad happens, like a rainstorm, like this, right, like that I'll be safe. I want to know that I have enough to cover anything that comes along. And again, none of this is bad thinking in and of itself. It is when we begin to serve that idea to worship that idea, to trust and love that idea of security more than God, more than ideas like love and grace and radical forgiveness. There's a story that Jesus told. It is honestly one of the weirdest parables in there. Uh, and it's, uh, it's about a, a poor man named Lazarus. It's quite confusing. This is in the Synoptic Gospels, so it's, not in, it's in the first three Gospels. Uh, and then there's a main character in the Gospel of John named Lazarus. Uh, I think they're just completely, it's just a coincidence. Uh, and this story is a parable, meaning uh, it, it wasn't, the Bible doesn't imply that this story is like history. It's saying that Jesus sat down to tell a great tale to teach a lesson. Um, and so it actually talks about this Lazarus person dying and going to the afterlife. Um, and uh, I just want to say, before I tell the story, you can read it for yourself in the Bible if you want. Uh, I don't necessarily think Jesus in the story is trying to exactly explain what the afterlife is like. I think he's trying to make a big point like he does in all of his parables. So he says this. He says, uh, there is a poor man, very poor man, homeless man named Lazarus. Uh, He had been poor his entire life. He had sores all over his body. And he would sleep at the gate of this wealthy person's house. And he was kind of such a mess that towards the end of his life, the dogs would come and, and lick his wounds and he'd have to shoo them away. And the wealthy man would come into his home every day, and Lazarus would ask him for help, but the wealthy man just ignored him. The wealthy man would throw extravagant parties. He dressed in the fine, it says he dressed in purple and fine linen, uh, that he had it all, uh, anything he could ever want. And then one day, the homeless man, Lazarus, dies. And the wealthy man doesn't even really notice or care. Well, when Lazarus dies, he goes to be with Abraham. He goes to sit at the bosom of Abraham, and finally, for the first time in his existence, in the afterlife, Lazarus has everything he could ever want or desire. He has a home. He has love. He has food. He's healthy. 
uh, everything's good for him. And then not long after that, the wealthy man dies. But the wealthy man, it says, goes to, uses the word Hades here. The wealthy man goes to Hades um, in the earth somehow. And there's, there's fire in there and he's, he's burning. And in this sort of, you know, kind of fantastical vision of the afterlife that Jesus is portraying, he says that uh, this wealthy man from sort of the, the fires of hell, basically, looks up and he can see into, he doesn't call it heaven, but he can see into the area where Lazarus is and he sees Father Abraham and he sees him in the afterlife in this good place and Lazarus is there like right beside him. Abraham's got his arm around him and the wealthy man says, uh, oh, Father Abraham, please, 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 I'm not asking to be where you are. I know I've done wrong. I know I deserve to be here, but please, would you please just send Lazarus with with a, a thimble of water to quench my thirst because the fire's killing me here. Like, it's terrible. It's awful. It's never ending. Um, and uh, Abraham says to the rich man, I'm sorry, I can't. Uh, first of all, this is how it works, basically is what he says. Um, you, you had a whole life of comfort. Lazarus had none. Uh, the time has come for that to be reversed. Uh, but also, there's a chasm between us. I'm not allowed. I'm not allowed to go down there. And the, the rich man says, well, please do this. Please Please just send Lazarus back to my family. Send him back uh, to the living. To, and I have five brothers, and they're living the same way I lived. And if Lazarus could go back, uh, then, uh, then he could warn them that this, this is going to happen to them. And Abraham says, uh, you know, again, against the rules. I don't know. Like, we can't do that. But uh, he says, uh, they ha- Abraham says, they have the scripture. It is pretty clear about how to treat poor people. They can read it there. And he says, no, please, please just send them back. If someone comes from the dead back to, back to life, then they'll believe. Uh, and Abraham says, I'll tell you the truth. Even if someone comes back from dead, they won't believe. Now, there's part of the story, a big part of the story where, because uh, Jesus tells this story to a group of religious folks, and he knows he's going to be the guy coming back from the dead saying, you can live, and no one's going to Many people aren't going to believe. Um, but what we have here is, uh, is, a, is, a, is a picture of how Jesus connects wealth and poverty to the afterlife and how he connects it to the meaning of life. Uh, and what he says is, you know, he says this all the time. The last will be first. The first will be last. The last will be first. The first will be last. The poor will be rich. The rich will be poor. Remember, this is, he's a poor person, often speaking to poor people. Um, if, if this parable makes you a little uncomfortable, it's important to note it did not make the followers of Jesus uncomfortable. They're, they're happy this is going to happen. <laughs> they see themselves, the, the earliest followers of Jesus would have seen themselves as Lazarus. We, rightly so, I think, tend to see ourselves as the rich man. And we ask ourselves, you know, well, well, what, what can I do? And uh, it is certainly implied in there, in this story, that the rich man knew what he was supposed to do. He was supposed to take what God had freely given him and give it to those in need. He was supposed to be generous. He was supposed to love his fellow man. But he was so, uh, he was so focused on his own life, on his own security, lived within a world of sort of scarcity thinking, where that if, if I give this man something, then I won't have it for myself. And I think this story comes alongside that and says, no, it's exactly the opposite. The more you give, the more you have.
Last one. I'm going to use the word meaning. For many of us, uh, we serve money even though we know we don't really need it anymore. Not all of us, some of us, right? It becomes a way to keep score. What's life all about anyway? I don't know. But if, if I get more, if I make more, if I get promoted more, if I buy more things, then at least it looks like I'm winning and I have some meaning in my life. Um, we, we see in, in, in Luke this story where uh, a very wealthy man comes to Jesus. Jesus had just been kind of wrestling with kids is the context of the story. The people wouldn't let the kids come to Jesus. He's like, let them come to me. This is what the kingdom of heaven looks like, little kids. And he's playing with them. And he's interrupted from this session of playing with the kids with this very a, a rich young ruler, it says. Who doesn't want to be rich, young, or a ruler? It's a great, he's, he's like, he's got it all, right? And he says, uh, uh, Jesus, uh, Rabbi, what must I do to have eternal life? Which I always think, that's a softball question for a pastor. Right? That's, you kind of want people to walk up and say that. Uh, he, he says, actually, he says, what he says to him is, good teacher. So he gives a compliment, too, right? Good teacher. What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus just, he just knows everybody's hearts in an instant, I think. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. <laughs> that, that, that always makes me step back, like, oh, Jesus, Jesus is in a mood or something. <laughs> like, I thought the dude was being pretty nice to you. But, and Jesus says, you want to inherit eternal life, you know the commandments. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Don't kill, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't lie, honor your mother and father. Do those, you'll live. And the man says, I've done all of those. I've never broken one since I was a boy. And I don't know if Jesus could do that thing where one eyebrow goes up. That's probably what's going on. And he says, what else do I lack? He's missing something. He doesn't have any meaning in his life. Even though he's been a perfect religious person and he's super wealthy and powerful. And young, he's got it all. And Jesus says, you do lack something. Go sell everything you have and give all the money to the poor. After you've done that, come follow me, and I'll show you how to have the life, real life. And it says the man, without saying a word, turns around and walks away sad. Because, because Luke says, because of his great wealth, he was sad. He couldn't do it. It's worth noting, Jesus doesn't ask everyone to sell everything they have and give to the poor. He always asks people that need to do that. <laughs> that, that need to realize your meaning is not going to come from this. And he had to be pushed in this situation. No, tell me, really, really. This is basically saying, tell me, why isn't religion working for me? Why is it not working? And Jesus finally says, because you... You love money, and you can't love your wealth and love God. They're mutually exclusive. I just said this in Matthew, Jesus says. Yeah. Um, and then someone says to Jesus right after that, he says, they say, well, then who can be saved? If wealthy people can't be saved, who can be saved? And Jesus says, anyone can be saved. God can save anyone. Just harder for wealthy people. It's like trying to get a camel through the eye of a needle. It is just a hard thing, but God can do it because God can make really big needles and really small camels if he wants to, right? <laughs> just hard. Peter says, his follower, Peter says, well, what about us? We left everything to follow you. It's such an honest thing, right? Like, we literally did that. <laughs> and what's going to happen to us? 
And Jesus says to Peter, I tell you the truth, anyone who has left their business, their home, their money, their brother, their sister, their mother, their father, for me and for the kingdom, will have more than that in return in this life and in the next. It's coming. You get it back. It becomes very clear in studying the early church that it was extremely important to them that there weren't poor people among them. They saw the job of the community that built around Jesus to meet one another's needs, and there was always enough. And what happens is when a group of people can bond together under Jesus and begin to believe that if we don't have to serve money to be happy or secure or have meaning, then we stop, we stop holding onto our possessions and our wealth with tight knuckle, white knuckles, and we open that up. And we find ways to share, and it can get messy and hard and difficult to figure it out sometimes, and it did in the early church. But the, the true gospel message of Jesus compels us, compels us to let go, to give. And in that we find what we really need. It is a great irony. It is an upside-down message of Jesus that the things you think uh, your wealth is getting you make you poor. All of this, you just end up sad, poor, empty, friendless. All the stories are bad. But when you give it up, you end up actually pretty happy, secure in who you are, and who your friends are, and who God is, and with, with a reason, meaning, hope, life, and also everything you need, because we share. It works. It's just hard. In this culture, more than any other, it's hard to believe. But I promise you, it's the gospel truth. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, for this uh, time together. Thank you for uh, this Independence Weekend uh, to not just remind us that we uh, we live in a in a free nation where we can gather here, uh, but to also, on an even deeper level, remind us that we can be free, uh, free from ourselves, uh, free from uh, the power that money holds over us. Some of us free to trust you and to um, and to experience life in a new community where we are known and loved. God, as we leave, may, may, may you send us out understanding that we are rich beyond our wildest dreams um, and that what good, mature, rich people do is give it away. So help us to give away uh, our physical uh, the physical money and things we have to help people, but also give away the grace, give away the joy, give away the hope that we've received through you constantly. May we be uh, grace peddlers, hope dealers everywhere we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. See you next week.